Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. Welcome back to another episode of Eagle Eye Power Solutions DC Power Hour. Today's topics will cover what's going on with America's aging infrastructure and how could the proposed infrastructure bill possibly help out, if at all. We'll also revisit what happened earlier this year in Texas and discuss if we still have a problem with financial engineering. Then we'll spend some time later on talking specifically about ground faults and how Eagle Eye's GFL 1000 addresses some of the challenges with finding these elusive grounds. All right, so here we are again with our segment Battery Blarney with George Peterson and Alan Byrne. Guys, I'm pretty excited to talk about today's topic with you both. I know you're going to have some really good insights and perspectives on this, so we're going to get right into it. We're going to talk about the aging grid infrastructure in America. And you guys have been working in this industry for decades, as we know, and and you guys have kind of seen where we've come from and where we are. And so... Let's start with the first question. How bad is it? How bad is the grid infrastructure? And when did you first notice in your time in this industry when you thought it might definitely become a problem? And I guess we'll just start with you, Alan, and then George, chime in as you'd like. Yeah, well, I first started noticing a decay in infrastructure probably about 30 years ago. And at that time, it was mainly because of the rejection of nuclear plants, and also when the generating companies, utility companies, when they wanted to build new power plants, it was almost impossible to get through the regulators. So a power plant from scratch takes probably about 10 to 12 years to bring online. The generating companies were being hindered or not allowed at all to bring new plants online. So that was the start of it. So uh, having used that as an opening, I'll hand over to George and then we can discuss it uh, back and forwards. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, I have to agree with you. In fact, in many ways, the whole thing to do with our infrastructure is to do with regulations and people who don't like uh, what we're trying to achieve uh, in many cases. It's not just the generating plants, it's the actual distribution network is probably in an even worse state at the present moment. Because every time the utilities want to put a new overhead line or a a high-voltage transmission line in, there is opposition from every side. Yet it's the same people that are opposing it that are complaining about the quality of the electricity. We've got to understand, think certain things have got to happen. This huge push we have at the present moment to want to go to all natural energy systems just isn't possible. It isn't applicable. We have a base load that has to be maintained 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you cannot use a source of power that is variable to do that. I know Alan's got something to say on that one as well, so I'll give it back to him. Well, we're going to talk about energy storage later. But uh, the ironic thing is, and I call it greenwash, is that the very people and the lobbies that want to use uh, natural energy They also want to use electric vehicles. They seem to forget about how they're going to power those electric vehicles, which is going to place a great load on the infrastructure that hasn't been figured into the equation yet. I agree with George about the 
you need a steady state of uh, power generation. One of the problems is that with the modern electronic age, more and more devices are relying on electric power at the moment, and the infrastructure just hasn't kept pace of it. It's not the operator's fault. Well, it isn't to a certain extent. We'll talk about regulation, but it's regulation fault. It's the inability sometimes for the operators to make a good return on investment. Also, we're probably going to talk about the Texas fiasco. And if we look at that, we can probably see, use that as a kind of a model for where the rest of the country's going. So do you want to comment on that, George? No, I'd point out what Alan said. The Texas fiasco was a perfect example of everything that was wrong with regulation. They had gone almost major into wind power because Texas has a lot of wind. And don't get me wrong, I am not against natural energy systems in any way, shape or form. But we have to understand where they fit into the overall generation program. If you've got a place like Texas where they had a, a high volume of wind, they have for many years supported quite a lot of the base load with wind generation. The only problem was that they did not buy the wind generators that were designed to handle the depth of cold that they got during the cold spell. It's not that wind generators can't operate in the cold. They work very, very well in Alaska and in uh, Northern Europe. But they hadn't bought the right ones because they were never going to see that depth of temperature, they didn't think. So it's financial engineering again. They went for the cheapest solution. Wait to hear what Alan has to say on that one. Well, don't get me started on financial engineering, George. Otherwise, we're going to take up the whole time of the podcast. But uh, in the case of Texas, it was kind of a unique case as well. Local, uh, the state utility company, ERCOT, Energy Reliability Council of Texas, which seems to be an oxymoron, they decided to stay outside the national grid system. So they weren't connected really to the western regional generating grid or the eastern region generating grid. The reason for that was the fact that they determined probably 20 years back that if they were regulating themselves, they could make more money. Plus, the fact that they wouldn't be interfered or come under the uh, eyes of NERC, the North American Electrical Reliability Council, or FERC, the Federal Energy, I forget what the the other two were, FERC, Federal Electrical Reliability Council. So they were operating on their own, and this thing just didn't happen overnight. They were warned probably 10 or 11 years ago that their infrastructure was fragile. But uh, talking about financial engineering, they didn't want to spend money. And look where that got them. I agree with George with the wind turbines freezing up. But the real culprit in that fiasco, which cost, by the way, $196 billion, which is more than double or triple the amount that they want to spend on the infrastructure during this money coming from the deep pocket government or the deep pocket taxpayer, should I say. But anyway, the uh, main culprit was the fact that the natural gas plants, which they were depending upon greatly, and Texas had more natural gas-powered power plants than any other state, the fact that the supply to the natural gas plants from the gas fields became inoperable because a lot of the distribution system was frozen. And consequently, some of the nuclear plants that they were 
looking to do a little bit of load leveling and things like that. Ironically, some of the cooling water for the nuclear plants got frozen as well. So it's just one thing after another, kind of like a domino effect. And if you read some of the reports, it said that the whole state of Texas was about two minutes away from a blackout that would have lasted two or three months. So over to you again, George. Uh, you paint paint me a really nice picture there, but you said that the ERCOT wasn't actually part of NERC. Believe it or not, it is still part of NERC. It's one of the regions. And there is an interconnect. There are, I believe, for the last diagram I saw, there were two uh, DC interconnects that allow uh, Texas to drop or provide power to the eastern region. The only problem was that the area in which the DC interconnects are connected their problem was that the states there were also suffering with extreme cold that they were not used to. And they basically, their network was at capacity. So there wasn't actually any capacity to send to Texas to help them out. They couldn't get it anywhere. And that's what brings us back to the next part of the problem we have is when you're talking about investment, the high voltage distribution line is simply very close to capacity. It doesn't have a lot of capacity to transmit power. And one of the problems we have then when we talk about natural energy systems are they tend to be in places where that transmission capability, it does not exist. So there's a lot of work to be done. The biggest problem I see with it is you want to talk about what could come out of the infrastructure bill. These are all private or public companies. They are supposed to provide all their own money to supply the service they are selling. Their job is not as taxpayers to pay our bills and then have to bail the companies out because they didn't do their jobs properly. I agree with you about the, those interconnections, you know, George, are very small and you hit the nail on the head, said that where they wanted to draw the power from was also suffering from uh, power shortages themselves. But what do we do with all this money that's been given to, by the taxpayer to clear up the mess that's been created over the last 20 or 30 years? They don't really know yet. If you want to beef up the transmission system, just go and say, hey, I want to bring build a large transmission line across your property and see what happens. It's going to be a whole pipeline deal again. Okay, you certainly need the energy, but you're not going to build a pipeline across the certain lands, shall we say. It's going to be the same for the electrical infrastructure. And what will happen is that there needs to be more investment in generation near those places that consume most of the energy. So I don't know too many large power plants or nuclear plants near near the uh, New York City area, New York City metroplex, or even in California. They're the very people that shun this. So it's going to, I hope I live long enough to see the fighting match between the uh, people that want to install, upgrade the network, and those people that want the power to consume the energy, but don't want the energy to get there just like the gas pipelines. So anyway, that's my beef. Where I think they should be spending the money is install small nuclear plants, micronuclear plants in New Jersey and California. I noticed that on the infrastructure bill, one of the four projects is to build a tunnel between New Jersey and New York City. Well, looks like that's going to cost more than the improvement to electrical infrastructure. So you can see where some people have got their priorities. Although uh, one person did tell me at one time that the New York tunnels to New Jersey 
proved that there was no light at the end of the tunnel. So over to you again, George. Yeah, you and I both know the New Jersey, New York tunnels too well. And uh, maybe I would complain about another one, having sat in the other two for many, many hours. And I, I also have to admit, every time I drive through one of those tunnels, I think about infrastructure and maintenance and think about what would happen if somebody was to explode a small bomb in the middle of it. We'd all be gone very quickly. So I try to get through there as fast as I possibly can. It's just a thing. But anyway, coming back to the uh, utility side of it, where should we put the investment? Well, one of the things that I thought was crazy for years was when we were investing and providing money to people to work on uh, solar farms and solar projects. Well, we still have all that coal under the ground. Now, I know I'll probably have people descending on me about burning coal. You can actually burn coal very clean and produce a number of other uh, useful items out of it, but it's very expensive to do. Maybe the answer is that we should be putting more investment into how to get clean coal cheaper so that the companies could afford to put the cleaning material into them. You know, you can get coal power plants extremely clean. What we've got to accept is that at some point, we are going to have to power the majority of the base load by a fossil fuel of some kind. It's either that or we flood every valley and build all hydro plants. You've got to make the decisions about where do you want this power to come from. Anything else to add to that, Alan? Well, you're certainly right there, but just to take it a step further, we should be looking at incinerators, waste incinerators all over the place. I know where I live, the county wanted to uh, build an incinerator and it was shot down by, uh, I won't say tree huggers, but it was, they all have good intentions, but it was shot down. So here, all that uh, waste is now being trucked to Pennsylvania. And whereas it could have been generated, uh, used as an incinerator plant. These can be very, very clean. You probably drive past a couple in Baltimore, George, and people don't even know they're there, basically. You see the giant smokestack, but there's nothing coming out of it. But just to bring, turn on another aspect, not only should we be beefing up the infrastructure and adding to it, but when we do that, we've got to look at cybersecurity. In my mind, that's the biggest problem uh, that we're going to face. And it's been proved already when they shut down the gasoline oil pipeline between uh, Texas and the Northeast. It just ground everything to a halt. So when we build out the infrastructure or beef it up, we're going to have to look at the cybersecurity aspect as well. And you and I both know, George, when we've been to, I've been to hundreds of generating plants. They're ancient and there's no cybersecurity whatsoever. So I'd like your comment on that. Just let's say every time I hear of another attack on something else, I wonder when it's going to hit one of the major utilities, because you're right, the level of security is not there. And, and a big part of it is a complete lack of understanding within all levels of management in many ways about what the problem is. You and I are maybe a little bit of a a more unique situation in that we were both in our service career involved in crypto. So we understand the whole basis of what any form of security is like. We were talking about communication security when we were doing it, but it's still the same point. You need to make sure 
that not only can you stop people accessing it, but you have to make sure that material that has been transmitted within the networks is sufficiently enciphered that somebody can't get in there and put false messages in. That, to me, is the big thing. But yeah, I think this whole fact is that we don't have the knowledge within these organizations to take this out. And I'm not blaming the people, don't get me wrong. It simply is, it's a, such a new subject that aren't the people out there to understand it and explain it. I'm not quite sure where we're going to go with that one. They want to modernize everything and make it all remotely monitored. And I'm a believer in remote monitoring, but you have to make sure that those networks are absolutely secure and you can't access them. So we'll just have to wait and see. You're just carrying on from what I said, and you're entirely right. But one further thing I'd like to look at is energy storage. Energy storage can be a great method of load leveling or providing power when the demand increases. But there's also uh, a load of power plants around the country, uh, which are called, usually referred to as peakers, that they bring online when the peak demand increases. Well, in the case of Texas, and I guess a lot of the country, is these peakers take a while to bring online. And oftentimes, because they're not actually online and generating, maintenance is completely forgotten about. So I think there was a couple of the examples in Texas. You can correct me if I'm wrong in that when some of the peakers were asked to come online, nothing happened for various reasons, how the generators wouldn't start or, or for various other reasons. So we've got to look at energy storage. I'm a firm believer in energy storage. And how we do it is kind of several different approaches. I don't think uh, lithium-ion energy storage packages are going to be the answer. We have already several problems with those. So there's new, some new technology coming online. But you can have hydro storage, and you can have solar storage, and you can have wind storage. So we've got to look at that a lot more closely. I totally agree with you on 100%, because, yeah, the key advantage of uh, storage is that you can actually stop a lot of those peakers running at high demand times, because the storage will cover what the peakers are normally doing. You can actually have a higher capacity generating a peaker that could come up and pick up more of the base load as such and allow the storage to balance it out. It's all about management. But your concerns about lithium are, I believe, well warranted. We see catastrophic fires all over the place. I believe at one point, Korea, which was very, very strong on lithium storage systems, recently put a halt to any of the utilities installing any more because they'd had too many fires within the lithium systems. It's not that lithium as a battery is bad. It's the fact it's far more unstable than any of our lead acid or, or NICAD type batteries. And it has to be controlled within a very, very narrow charge discharge range. And if you don't invest the money in that quality of control system, you are going to be open to the battery running away. So it comes back to it. We can do anything we want. We just got to understand the cost of it. Yeah, you, you, once again, I get worried, George, because we're agreeing with each other too much here. But sometimes that's good. But with respect to lithium, I remember at the first or second BATCON, which I guess was 25 years ago, I stood up in the podium and said, somebody was asking a question about lithium. 
And my answer was, not in my lifetime. So I was getting worried for a few years. But since I'm getting on in years, I think I can safely rely on that remark in that, although a great technology, very innovative, but because of all the complications and the controls and the susceptibility uh, to certain uh, spontaneous disassembly, shall I call it, it's never really going to catch on, although it's been pushed and pushed and pushed. But I wonder what's going to happen when the government grants and all the money that's been thrown at it is going to stop and they start focusing on another technology. And there's, I won't mention which ones, but there, there are a couple out there very, very promising. So guys, really great information there and awesome to hear your points of view. As we look to kind of wrap up here, I want to just uh, get your final thoughts on this. So the last I checked, it was $73 billion earmarked for the infrastructure bill from the Biden administration. What's it going to do? Is it going to do anything or is it just throwing money in the wrong places again? I don't want to get political here, but I figure you, Dave, is probably pretty accurate. But that's one-tenth of the total infrastructure bill. And with any government project, no matter what the government is, seems to have a lot of overruns, a lot of money thrown in the wrong direction. There's a lot of pork. So is it really going to be spent in some way that's going to benefit the country as a whole? I don't think so. I'm a little bit of a pessimist, but you know what happens when government takes control of a lot of things and where the money's coming from the government. So I'm not very optimistic. It's going to do a great deal of good, but uh, there again, there's financial engineering involved. So that's my comment. Yeah, that's just the number for the power grid part of the infrastructure bill. So George, what do you think? The question is just what we were talking about earlier on cybersecurity. Perhaps that's where a lot of it should be spent because we need to protect the grid. The the existing infrastructure we have needs to be protected. And to be honest, it's almost got to be protected at a government level. There's got to be steps taken to try and protect our overall network. Because you're just not going to see the money invested by private companies often to achieve the level of security required. That's to me, is the biggest problem. But so maybe some of the money should be spent in that direction as a good start to at least protect what we have. Yeah, that's only where I would agree the government participation. But government, including OSHA, is very good in telling you what to do, but they don't tell you what how to do it or they don't really say, uh, this is what you need to do. So I'm very pessimistic. But there again, that's my nature. I think you've seen enough to justify that pessimism too. So any final thoughts from either one of you as we close out this topic? It's hard to summarize it, but uh, spend the money, spend it wisely. Have greater oversight from uh, some people. Here where I am at the moment in Connecticut, there was massive flooding. So not only were the Road infrastructure shut down. A lot of electrical infrastructure shut down because of the uh, water ingress to uh, various substations and things like that. But the one thing we need to do is we need to monitor the heck out of everything. That's not being done at the moment. We need to monitor, 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 and maintain, maintain, maintain. So there was a third M, I can't remember what it was, but the two of them was monitor and maintain. I'll add the third one for you, Alan manage because that seems to me to be the one of the biggest challenges we have today 
is a complete lack of management capability amongst people within companies. That was the third one. Manage, yeah. The three M's. So I'm not as dumb as I thought I was. No. Well, depends which way you look at it, George. I always like Alan likes to have the last word to something. Yes. Okay, David, back to you. Thanks, guys. Yeah, great. Great information. Really appreciate your insights on that. So that'll wrap up Battery Blarney for this week's episode. And we'll talk to you guys again next time. All right. So the next segment of the podcast today is going to be our product spotlight. And we are going to introduce to you our Eagle Eyes head of sales, Luke Walder, who is going to talk with George about some of the importance or challenges and issues associated with ground fault location and how Eagle Eyes GFL 1000 can help address some of these issues. I'm going to pass it over to you, Luke. Thanks, Dave. Hi, George. Thanks for the time. George has a tremendous back knowledge on ground fault. So I thought it'd be great to pick his brain for a few minutes and talk about DC grounds and kind of how they exist in our today's power world. So George, I have a few questions I just wanted to kind of ask you. First one, what are some of the primary concerns associated with a DC ground fault? And do you have any examples you can provide? I think before we do, in order to understand what a ground fault is, you've got to first of all consider the fact that a lot of the power systems that exist, for instance, the telecom 48 volt, the positive is grounded. And the electrical system itself, as a standard, is grounded. That's the path. It's almost the path back to the, the source with electricity as a ground. But we do have power systems installed that are what we refer to as floating. In other words, neither the positive nor negative is grounded deliberately, and they are isolated from any grounds. And that voltage that's across those two connections is what is the correct voltage to power the equipment. In most of the cases, it's the utility in a substation. So the real problem is because they are floating and they're not referenced to ground, if you develop a ground within that system, it will effectively drop part of the voltage because there will be a path back through ground back to the original power supply at some place if that connection is made. So that's the key to it. If you start to get a ground fault, ground faults will exist within systems, very small ones, simply with the coupling capacitors and some things like that. But the system will continue to operate. Your problem becomes if you get a ground fault on both of the polarities at the same time, then you have a major problem and you could, in fact, lose the power supply. Some of the bigger problems that you say, can I think of something in particular? Not so much on an acid. I think, think of it at the battery point. If you don't have the batteries cleaned, then you can easily get a ground fault, especially if these are vented cells, for instance, and you're not very careful when you're topping up or taking a specific gravity reading and allow some of that electrolyte to spill on the top. That will, in fact, create a conductive surface that will allow the, and you can short part of the battery out and effectively cause a battery fire because of it. So it's important that when you have an isolated power supply like we use on the utilities, and in some ways, some of the old GPS systems used to also be isolated. The more modern ones without any transformer isolation at the front end, no, they have paths back to ground that can appear on the battery. But again, the system is designed to handle it. 
with the isolated power supplies that we're talking about in substations and generating plants, they're not designed to handle a ground fault. So we have to make sure that when we do identify them, we have to find them as quick as possible. It's as simple as that. Thanks for the answer, George. Your question or your statement in regards to the batteries brings me to another question. Could it actually cause the battery to go on thermal runaway if you didn't properly detect the ground? Is that possible? Yes, it could do. Because, because what you'd be doing is, depending on the resistance, you could effectively, you would be drawing part of that current that was available from the charger, for instance, would be going to ground. It would only be going through part of the battery and that part of the battery would start to heat up. Interesting. Yeah. One of the big problems with ground faults is there's nothing actually that definitive. There are some calculations out there that you can estimate how much of a ground fault you can have before it gets too dangerous. But I tend to be the old-fashioned person, probably because of my age, and I've got a simple attitude. If you have a ground fault, you want to fix it as soon as possible. Because even if it's not causing you a problem right at this moment, something else can easily happen that will definitely cause a problem with it. So don't leave anything unattended. Perfect. What are some of the problems with trying to identify and locate a DC ground? To be honest, the biggest problem you have is they're online. You have a power supply that's powering a some form of system, whether it's a substation or a generating plant controller, whatever it might be, that power system is powering that equipment and it has to continue to operate. Because the easiest way to find the ground fault, obviously, is to simply switch things off until it disappears. And then that piece of equipment you've just switched off is the location of the ground fault. Then you've got to find it within the equipment itself, but at least you've isolated it to one particular piece of equipment. The problem with that is that today... Electricity is not something that could be turned off. That's probably the thing that most people don't quite realize when you talk about the generation and distribution of it. If you turn anything off, somebody is not going to have power. And that's simply not acceptable in today's world, at least from the consumer point of view. So we have to find a way. There has to be methods by which we can then try to detect the location of the ground fault without taking the system offline. There has been a lot of work done on that field, and we have products to do it now. And that product, I think, is uh, what we, we want to talk a little bit more about is our GFL 1000. It's a ground fault locator, and it allows us to actually identify the location of a ground fault within a system by injecting an AC signal into the system. Now, remember... These power supplies we're talking about are DC. They can be DC 48 volt, DC 110 volt. If it was one of the old-fashioned UPSs, it could easily be 480 volts at DC. But the point is, that if you inject an AC signal into it at a specific frequency, you can then trace that frequency through the system by using a clamp-on, like a clamp-on meter, and you'll hear that tone or you'll see that signal on a meter. Some of the systems actually use a, almost an audio frequency, so they, you're listening for a tone. Ours uses a much lower frequency than that, so we have a meter by which we actually see the indications of the signal as you're tracing it through. It's actually, there's a little bit of an art to it. If you've got one of the devices, what I've seen with the people I've done the training for is a few people 
take to it and they love it. They think it's great fun and off they go. And they become very, very good in a short period of time at finding quite complex faults or finding out where they can be. They don't always be able to fix them, but they can at least find the fault, the area the fault is in. Because sometimes you simply cannot take that piece of equipment off. I've seen it, uh, one of the sites I was at, we traced it all the way back through, and it was a brand new controller for a gas turbine that was up and running and providing, it was a peak load, they were providing the load during a hot summer's day. So there was no way we could go any further with the tracing. And it was going to have to be a case of, okay, we know where that ground fault is, we've identified it, now we have to plan the outage necessary to go and finish it off. Other ones I worked with, where it was a piece of cable, we were able to trace it all the way out in the substation and find where the shot had occurred. Probably the biggest problem people have with it when you first start to use it is to understand the concept a little bit and then recognize that there are things that can be misleading within it. That's one of the other challenges you have is it will, if you have, for instance, switchboard power supplies in the system, which the majority of the modern systems do now have, those switchboard power supplies have got large capacitors at the front end to prevent them feeding uh, high frequency back onto the AC line or the DC line. And because you're now putting an AC signal into it, it will look as if that power supply is a fault. But again, with the experience, you learn to look at it, you learn to recognize what you're seeing, and you can identify and say, I know what that is, I'm not going to chase that. I would say the other thing that is most important when you're using a GFL 1000 is that you have to be knowledgeable about how the system is laid out and what all the power paths are and what is powering what when you're chasing the circuit through. That's the key to it. So you need local knowledge about the system and then understand how the device works. Great answer. So to be clear, you can use the GFL 1000 on an energized system and offline. Is it both ways? Can it be used to test? Or I know you stated that it's energized, but it can do both. Is that correct? Yes. If you have it offline, that's wonderful. But as I say, these days, I don't see many of these uh, standby power plants that you can take offline. That has become a a major challenge to do maintenance is that they are all now there 24-7 required. So that's why the GFL 1000 becomes so important, is that you can actually go in there and use it, and the power system itself will see no, there'll be no impact at all on the power system as part of the testing process. It becomes the technician's job to make sure that they are very careful when they're tracing the cables out and they don't knock something off or do anything. So one of the good things about it is that on some of the other systems, you have to separate the positive and negative cables in order to do the tracing. On the JFL 1000, that's not necessary. You can simply clip it. If you have, a, for instance, a, a twisted pair red and black cable, which a lot of the systems use to power individual units, you can simply put the clamp around that and it will recognize the signal even although they theoretically they're cancelling each other out if you're not careful, but it works. Yeah, it's a good point because oftentimes guys will ask me if it's safe to use the GFL because of the 
AC current that it's injecting in the amps, but okay, perfect. Another question I would have for you is, is there anything they need to do with the charger? A lot of stuff now, or the equipment is monitoring and has a ground fault detector already built into the battery monitoring systems or the charger. Do they need to take that offline or shut that off? Or can you advise how the GFL 1000 works if there's already a monitor on the system looking for a ground? The GFL 1000 will find that monitor first before anything else because the majority of the monitors out there that are used on the system actually create a balanced ground so that you have a balanced ground and then they monitor that balance. In the event that you develop a ground fault, that will no longer be balanced and that's how you get the signal to indicate that there's a ground fault. The problem is that the GFL 1000 will actually see that circuit as a ground fault. So you have to effectively disable it. You either disable the circuit itself or you have to take the charger off line, which some of the older chargers, it's not that easy to disable them. You may have to take a board out. I've had to do that in the past. But a lot of the more modern ones, they actually have a switch in them allow you to disable the ground fault monitor and take that. they take that ground off so that you can use something like a GFL 1000 to go trace it. But yeah, that's, I would say probably easily over 50% of the calls that I have worked on with uh, customers that were having problems, they were answered simply by pointing in the right direction to take the ground, the existing ground fault monitor off. It's probably the biggest problem people see. Okay, thanks. One last question for you, George. What else do people need to understand about DC ground faults and why is finding them in a timely fashion so important? As I said earlier on, in these systems, you can have a certain level of ground fault. It can exist and it will not impact the operation of the system as it's on one leg. It's not on both. But if you end up with a problem on both legs, you can easily start to drop the operating voltage below what will operate the system and take the whole system down. So it's just me being the old-fashioned guy, is if you have a problem, you have to fix it. You can't just leave it. Just because it isn't giving you a problem at this moment in time, you can't just leave it. You've got to get out there and fix it. For instance, quite a lot of the ones, some of the ground faults that exist are due to water ingress into cables that are going underground. And the ground fault only occurs when it rains. Now, okay, the water's got in there, it's in the cable. And currently, the fault is on the negative wire. If you leave it there and it keeps getting wetter and wetter, it could easily get to the positive and take the whole system down. And the thing to remember is that sometimes those power systems and the location where those ground faults can occur are part of the control network to take that parts of that substation or offline or online. And you will lose that capability if you have a ground fault within that circuit. So it's essential that they find them. It's as simple as that. It's You can't leave it there on the hope that another fault doesn't occur. As I have been known to say many times, Murphy has been my best friend. He's been on my back the whole time. I've been very lucky. I've escaped most of his attempts to get me into trouble. But it doesn't always happen. Sometimes, no matter what you do correctly, you get hurt. And people today, it probably this applies very much to the utility side of it, is this whole thing about we are so reliant on the power. We just don't understand the world without it. So 
they've got to make sure that none of these potential problems are just left to, to sit there because they're a little bit too difficult to find. Great insight, George. Appreciate your time. I think you answered a lot of great questions and gave us a lot of background knowledge of why the GFO 1000 is such an important tool in today's society. Thanks, Luke, very much. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks again for tuning in to today's DC Power Hour. We really enjoyed discussing the timely topics about our infrastructure and some of the issues associated with DC ground faults. For more information on any of these topics or other critical power solutions, visit our website at eepowersolutions.com. So check us out next time when we'll discuss battery room safety and spill containment, and we'll check in with one of our service tech managers to get a field report directly from the field. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then. Mm-hmm.